a little while back, I think it's probably about six months ago, I was going through a whole load of stuff that was meaning I was quite stressed, quite anxious. And I remember talking to a friend of mine and just, just explaining to him all the, all the challenges I was having to deal with and just kind of listing them. And, and also as part of that, talking about all the stuff that I felt inadequate about, that I felt I'm not up to this because I'm not like this and I can't do this and I don't do that. And he just listened really um, patiently. And then at the end of me kind of listing all the challenges and listing all the, all the problems with me, he, uh, he just asked me a question. And I don't know if you've ever had it where someone just asks you a question. It kind of changes your whole perspective on something. But that's what he did. So he just said to me, okay, Andy, I've heard all you, all you said. Um, let me just ask you this. What difference would it make if God was involved? And if he was good? And I, I remember thinking, oh, uh, I've been walking with him since I was pretty young. I, I now do this for a job. And that question hasn't actually occurred to me. What difference would it make if God was involved and he was good? And I suppose I just want to pose that question to us together as a family um, this morning. Just, and, and look at it practically. What difference does it make to us that we walk with the living God? That, that every morning when we wake up, he's, he's there. Every evening when we close our eyes, he's there. And everything in between, he's there. What difference does it make um, having God involved, what difference does it make that he's good? And specifically, I want to kind of tie this to some of the things, some of the challenges that we can go through as people in this life. And to help me with that, I, I want to use as a window for this, the story of Joseph and his family. And um, you can find this starting in Genesis 37. Uh, if you've never come across the story of Joseph, you have to travel back in time 3,000 years to meet a family that, are, that, if they were around today, would have featured heavily in the plotline of EastEnders. They are dysfunctional, and they are dramatic. And there's uh, this moment, right, really at the beginning of the story, where Joseph, as a young man, he has dreams of, of what God is going to do through his life. Um, but it all goes horribly wrong, because he, he's quite arrogant, it seems. He tells his older brothers that, effectively, they're all going to bow down and, and kind of serve him. And so as a response to that, they do what any self-respecting older brother would do if their younger brother said, you're going to bow down and serve me, which was sell them into slavery. And um, that's what happens. His older brothers sell him into slavery. And he, uh, we can travel with Joseph in the story. If you want to, you travel with him to the land of Egypt. And you, you, you're there with him in the house of Potiphar, the Egyptian official who he serves. You're there with him when Mrs. Potiphar accuses him of, uh, falsely accuses him of raping her. And so he finds himself falling even further from being a slave to being a prisoner. And you can sit with Joseph in the cell as he interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer. You can be standing with Joseph in the throne room of Pharaoh when he hears and interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And then be with him as he's lifted up from the lowest position you could be in a prisoner to the highest, the prime minister of Egypt. Um, so the story of Joseph has a lot to teach us, but it's not just the story of Joseph. It's the story of Joseph and his family. And one of the things that struck me recently as I was reading it is this moment where Joseph has, has been sold into slavery. It's like a bomb goes off in the whole family. And so the angle that I want to take on the story is, meanwhile, back in the land of Canaan. While Joseph is going through all the ups and downs that he experiences, what is happening back in the land of Canaan? So let's come back to the moment where his brothers decide we're going to sell this guy into slavery. And you can read this in Genesis 37. 
the, uh, the brothers have spotted Joseph in the distance coming towards them and they've decided they're going to kill him. And so it says this, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Wow, Judah, that's so kind of you. Instead of murdering him, let's just sell him and then we'll get some money out of it. Um, anyway, his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of, of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben, this is the oldest of the brothers, returned to the cistern and saw what jo that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. So when, uh, when Joseph is sold as a slave, effectively this bomb goes off in the family and the repercussions of that, I just want to focus on the two groups, the other people involved, the father and the brothers. And what you see is it's like they're overwhelmed by two things. The first is grief and the second we'll come to in a little bit with the brothers, which eventually is guilt. They can't get the better of their guilt. So first of all, coming to grief, um, what happens for Jacob is Joseph and it's absolutely wrong, but this was, he was a very dysfunctional father, Jacob. Joseph was his favorite son. And so he gave him a robe. He treated him um, better than he treated the other brothers. And then this, this robe that he'd given Joseph as a sign and token of his love comes back to him covered in what he thinks is Joseph's blood. And at that moment, we read that Jacob tears his clothes. And grief Real acute grief, when it comes into our lives, it so often feels like someone has seen the ordered pattern of our life and ripped it into pieces. And those I know who have suffered deep loss, what they, can, what they often say is it's as though your life is divided into before and after that moment. That from that point on, there's before the loss and there's after the loss. And um, often, the most acute type of grief is when we are bereaved, when we lose somebody that we love. They're, they're no longer part of our lives. But it's not the only type of grief. Um, there's the sort of grief we can experience where we had dreams growing up, dreams of what our lives were going to look like, and it hasn't worked out like that. And, and we hit a point in life where we recognize it's not going to work out like that. There's the grief of losing someone we love, um, but there's also the grief of losing a relationship with someone that we love. A relationship that breaks down, that leaves behind a scar and a wound and, and, and an open sore sometimes. 
There's the grief of losing a job that we really felt was ours or, or a home even. There's grief hits us in many forms. And, and when it comes, there, there always needs to be a process, a healthy process of going through it. There's no way of circumventing grief or, or shortcutting it. It's, it's part of the, the journey that we're on. But one of the things that's important to, to recognize about grief is that it's meant to be a journey that we go through rather than somewhere where we always stay. It's not meant to be a destination. I don't know if you've seen in the news this morning, but uh, there's a guy who uh, has just died, and he um, is famous because he came from Iran to Europe, and having been kicked out of a couple of countries because he didn't have the right paperwork, he found himself in an airport in France, and he ended up living in this airport for 18 years. Have you heard of his story? It became a film, um, Tom Hanks stars in it, called The Terminal, this guy who lives in an airport for 18 years. Well, he's just died. And um, of course, that we all recognize that you don't go to an airport to live. You go to an airport to travel. To, it's, it's, it's part of the journey. It's not the destination. And whilst you may visit airports from time to time, they're never meant to be a place of permanent residence. So, so it is with grief. It's this journey that we go through, but it isn't meant to become what it seems like it becomes for Jacob. So what Jacob says here is, no, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. This, he refuses, we're told, to be comforted. I will never move beyond this and I will never move past it. This will define every day of my life until I die. And the reality is with grief, that there's, there's some things that we lose. There are some particularly people that we lose where nothing can replace that loss. And it's as though grief has, has kicked down the door of our lives and walked in and taken up residence. And it lives in the rooms that they used to inhabit. It lives in the clothes that they used to wear. It lives even in the smells that reminds us of that person. And those who've been through deep, real loss, what they often say is that you, you never get over it. There are, there, there's never a point where you don't go back and visit that place. But what they also say is that you can learn to live on the other side of it. And it really can be living. You, you can go on a journey through it and emerge out of the other side. Um, what Jacob did, um, where, where I think possibly he, he, could, he went a little wrong, is he, made, he refuses to be comforted. No one can comfort me. And he thinks, this is it now. My life is going to be this blackness until it's over. But what if God was involved? And what if God was good? Well, he is involved. And 22 years later, what's happened by this point is Joseph has become the prime minister of Egypt. And the brothers are sent to Egypt to, to, to get food. And you can see even in the way that Jacob sends them, he says, you can't take Benjamin because I've already lost Joseph. I can't lose now Benjamin. So even his thinking is still very much defined after two decades by this grief that he's been through. Um, but the brothers go and they discover eventually, long story short, that Joseph is still alive. And they come back and they tell the father and they say, Jacob, we're all going to go down. Dad, we're going to go down. Joseph is still there. And so Jacob finally believes them, is on his way to, to meet Joseph. And then we see in the scripture that he has a vision of God when he's en route. And this is the first vision he has that's recorded since he lost his son. And what God says to him in, the, in this vision 
is he's just, he's so kind to him. He's so good to him. And he just says, first of all, Jacob, don't worry that you're leaving the land of Canaan, which I promised to your granddad, Abraham. Don't worry about that. You know, you, I'm going to make sure you come back as a people so you can rest easy on that one. And then the second thing he says, and this is the final thing that God says to Jacob that's recorded in the Bible. The final thing he says is, hey, you know, he doesn't put it quite like this, but read it. You know that vow you made when you lost Joseph? You said, my, my head will go down to the grave in sorrow. Well, you need to know, Jacob, Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So the way you're going to die, put another way, is he's going to be there with you. He's going to be the one mourning you, Jacob, not the other way around. This is going to work out so much better than you ever thought it could. And we might think, well, okay, but how does that apply to those things that we lose? Because there are people we have lost, and it turns out it's not a big, horrible mistake. They really are gone. Uh, there are dreams that we had of our lives about how they were going to look and what it was going to be like, and it hasn't come to pass, and it doesn't look like it's going to now. So, so what do we do? And for me, part of the message of this is what we, our response is not to just do more stuff. It's not about here's a Here's a job for you if you're struggling through grief. Here's, here's a list of things for me. It's not about what, what we do. It's about what he wants to do for us. And what he, the God of kindness and compassion, wants to do for us in our grief is comfort us. He wants to bring his comfort into our lives. But how does he do it? Paul describes him, God, as the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Jesus himself is someone who we're told in the scripture is familiar with sorrow. He's familiar with grief. This isn't for him a theory that he can give us some advice on. But the main way he comes to comfort us initially, I think, is through his presence. The spirit is called the comforter. And we, in our pain at times, and I have been there, in our anger, what we can do is we can want to, we want to isolate ourselves and cut ourselves off from him. And so if there is something for us to do, it's to say, here I am with my, my, my rage, my, my confusion, my, my hurt, my, my black hole of despair that it feels like nothing can fill. Here I am. Just, but I give you permission to meet me and to meet me as I am and to comfort me. I don't know if you've ever been through pain and just had to hold it together because of the situation. You just had to. And then you have a really good friend who just bursts in through A&E, you know, the, the, the warder. They, they've come to find you. Or you, you finally walk through the home of a parent or something like that. And they're just there. And they look at you and they say, how are you? And you've been able to hold it together that whole time. And then when they say it, you lose it. Have you ever had that? There's something about people who are safe, who we know are on our side, where it's just like, this is a safe space now for this to come out. And there is no safer space than the arms of our Father. There's no more comfortable space than in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can be shy away from that because we know what's happened for many of us is we've bottled away all this, all this stuff. And we're afraid that if we let the cork out, what's going to come up? But it comes up in his presence. He doesn't, he doesn't shame us. He just embraces us. 
It's the comfort of his presence. Jacob, while his son was sold into literal slavery, became a slave to his grief. But then God was involved and God was good. I know that's an inadequate thing if you're dealing with grief. Um, No words can ever really address it, but his response is never inadequate. And my encouragement would be, as, as I seek to do in my own little ways, look to him, look to him. He wants to comfort us. But here's the second group, the brothers. Guilt. There are, I think, two main types of guilt. There's kind of what we might call false guilt, um, which is guilt that we sometimes feel about stuff that really we haven't, we haven't really done. And we shouldn't really feel guilty, but that we do. And then there's true guilt. We have done something and we probably should feel guilty about it. And um, some, some of us are quite wired towards false guilt. So I don't know if you've ever been driving in your car and a police car kind of pulls up behind you or near you. Um, am I the only one at that point, even though I've been doing absolutely nothing wrong, feels like possibly I have done something wrong? Um, I got stopped by the police a little, a little while ago in Watford because um, I was driving late at night in this part of Watford that I didn't know. And um, I turned the wrong way down a one-way street and I'm driving down this street and, um, and then it dawns on me it's a one-way street and I'm going the wrong way on it. And then a police car came along driving the right way up the one-way street. So I had to reverse out of this street and then they pulled up their car next to my window and went like this. So I wound the window down and the guy says, this is a one-way street, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I just didn't, I didn't see the sign. And then he said, have you been drinking? And I hadn't touched a drop, but I suddenly thought, have I been drinking? I don't know. Maybe I have. Um, you know, I remember going home and telling Beth, and uh, <laughs> she just said, that's hilarious. You should have said to him, no, I'm just that bad at driving, um, which is true. There's, there's, a, there's a couple in our church who I was talking to um, just the other week, and they were telling me about a date that they went on. And they were saying that they went, to, uh, they went on this date to the cinema, And they arrived late for the film, and there was no one there to buy a ticket from. So the husband said, well, let's just go in. We'll watch the film, because we've already missed a little bit anyway. We don't want to miss any more. And then we'll pay for the ticket. You know, the ticket's on the way out. So they went in. There's no no one around. So they literally just went into the cinema, sat down, started watching this film. And I thought it was so funny, because he sat there, happy as Larry, just like watching the film. And his wife told me that she could not concentrate for a moment on the film. She was terrified that someone was going to come and say, that's my seat, or what are you doing here? We've got CCTV in this, in this cinema, and we've watched you wandering. So she couldn't, she couldn't focus on, on the film at all. And um, obviously, I, I can't name them, because after the, the um, film finished, they went out to try and find someone to pay, and they couldn't find anyone to pay, so they are now criminals on the run. <laughs> and they are sitting in the third row of this church. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of Claudias and Gilbertos around, so I could say their names and you wouldn't know who they were, but I won't. Um, so that, that's an example of, uh, of like false guilt. You know what? Even with all intensive purposes, you're going to pay, but you sit there not able to enjoy. And um, we've, we experience this in different ways. So those of us who are parents sometimes have parental guilt. You haven't done anything, but you feel like you could have done more. Um, survivor's guilt is a thing where you somehow survive and, and it's not your you know, fault that others didn't, but you feel guilty because of that. Um, just a general sense of guilt. I, I don't know what I've done, but I've definitely done something terrible and I can't tell you what it is. That sort of guilt is not what we're talking about here. That's another thing for us to deal with with the Lord, perhaps on another day. This is guilt that they feel 
because they have done something. And what they did, the brothers, was brutal and it was calculated. This wasn't a, a, a sin of passion in a moment. They, they saw him coming and they had a debate. And then when he got there, they threw him in the well and they sat down and had lunch and they had a talk about it. And then they said, let's sell him. But can you imagine what it would have been like for them? After they've sold him, they say, right, well, we can tell dad. Okay, let's take his robe. Let's kill a goat. Let's soak it in that blood. And then let's take it back to him. And I, I wonder for the, for the boys when it hit them what they'd done. Was it when they handed this blood-soaked robe back to their own father and claimed that their own brother was dead from an animal? Or was it when their father broke and tore his clothes and sat there day after day after day sobbing? What would it have been like for them as they, they went to the family meals, you know, at the festivals and all those times, and they, and they sat together and they, they looked at each other across the table knowing what they'd done. But what happens is when we do things that we regret and we, and we can think of them, they, we think we can move past it, but they haunt us. There's a, a, I don't remember hardly any of my GCSE English, but I remember this scene in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth takes part in a murder, and, uh, and then she just spends the rest of the play just trying to wash her hands because she's trying to wash the blood off. There's nothing on her hands, but she's trying to wash them, wash them, wash them. There's this little line, all the perfumes of Arabia could not sweeten this little hand of mine. Murder will out, as they say. Guilt comes to get you. And the sign that these guys have never really got past it is that 22 years later, when they go to Egypt, and as far as they're concerned, Joseph is dead. He's out of the picture. Um, and they stand in front of him, and they don't know it's him. And he doesn't let on initially. He's obviously dealing with his own stuff. So he kind of messes with them a little bit, and he puts them in jail for a couple of days. And, uh, and, and then anyway, and it goes wrong for them. The first thing they say to each other, even though this is something that happened 22 years ago, when it goes wrong, and they don't know it's Joseph, the first thing they say to each other is, this is because of what we did to Joseph. Doesn't that tell you everything? And as far as they're concerned, there is no way back. Can you imagine that? There's, there's no way of making up for this. It's, it's done. And all you have is the huge weight that you've done something you should never have done. But what if God were involved? And what if he were good? Well, he is. And so eventually, Joseph blows his cover, takes his mask off, so to speak, and they realize it's him, and they are terrified. And, and then Joseph just says to them, don't be afraid. He says, don't be angry with yourselves. I don't know if you've got something you're angry with yourself for doing. But he says, don't be angry with yourselves, because you intended this for harm, but God intended it for good. He said, it wasn't even you who sent me here. It was God who sent me on ahead of you to prepare the way for you. And he forgives them. And he does more than just forgive. What he does is he says to them, hey, um, not I forgive you and here's a bit of food and clear off now. What he says is go and get dad, get all your families, bring them here to Egypt and I'm gonna give you the best of Egypt and you're gonna have everything I can uh, afford to give you. It's gonna be phenomenal. Now, we walk through life, and not all of us, but some of us, we end up feeling guilt as well we should, because we have done things we should never have done. 
And there are times where we don't do things. There's a sin of what's called sin of commission. And then the old school way of saying it, the sin of omission. When we didn't do something and we should have done it. And it can feel at times like a weight that is almost too heavy to bear. And what people believe in our world is that there's, there's no way back for some of that stuff. That all you, have, all you have now is regret. And that will define the rest of your life. But what if there was a God and what if he was good? Well, there is a God. And what he does is he meets us when he reveals himself to us. Not as the person of Joseph, but as the person of Jesus Christ. And what we find when, like the brothers, we come towards God, like the brothers did with Joseph, expecting punishment, expecting to get what our actions deserve, we come to him, and as the brothers did with Joseph, we encounter mercy. And we find grace. And what his grace is, is he says to us, I forgive you. I forgive it. Every sin that's ever been committed by you has ultimately been towards me. And you need to know that I do not condemn you. I forgive you. And we find even more than that, because then in addition to his forgiveness, he pours upon us blessing. The blessing of becoming his children. The blessing of, of walking with him all the days of our lives. The blessing of having him as a father, as a friend. As, as the one who lives within us. But this is who we meet. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen um, or, or like read the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's like super old from the 1600s. But in that book, this guy Pilgrim is kind of, it's a picture really of the Christian life. It's kind of told in story language. But he's this guy who doesn't know God and he carries around with him this huge rucksack everywhere he goes. It's like if you had a massive camping rucksack and you filled it with stones, that's what he's got on his back. And he just, he can't get rid of it. And then finally, he finds himself at Calvary at the foot of the cross and he kneels down in repentance. And this is part of what it is to deal with guilt for things we've done wrong. He kneels down in repentance and he says sorry. And the moment that he repents at the foot of the cross, it's as though someone's taken like a, like a sword and they've cut the straps of this backpack and it rolls away from him and it rolls off down the hill and he stands up and he's light and he's free and he's joyful and he goes on to, to, to all the glory that he has ahead of them. That's a picture for us of the cross and of what happens when we too kneel at the foot of it, where, where we bring to him our burdens. And this is what starts when we say yes to him. But we will make mistakes as we go on in the journey. We all do. And, and don't hear me for a moment in that this is some kind of a permission slip God gives us because he doesn't care about our sins. He, he loathes sin. Um, he, he, he is opposed to sin. But, but what it is, is it's the goodness of our God that what he does is he, on the cross, he takes it on himself. That punishment that the brothers expected, he allows that to be enacted upon him. Those things that, that we expect to happen to us, he allows it to happen to him so that what we might receive is grace. And some of us, you've got a sense of guilt that's just part of your makeup. Um, and I can, I can relate to that one. But others of us, and I can relate to this too, there are certain things 
you have been carrying for too long. And we believe somewhere inside that that sin is somehow bigger than his kindness and his grace. And that is not true. What if there were a God and what if he were good? What we would find is that he invites us into a life that is free from guilt, not because we never sin, but because when we do and we come and confess and repent of our sins, he always, always holds us close, often weeping like Joe did. This is the moment that I've longed for. Now let me bless you with all this stuff. This is what our God is like and this is what it is to live with him. Let me ask you the same question as we finish. You know that thing that you are struggling with right now? What if God were involved? What if he were good?